0: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Buddhist Studies. I'm Connie Casser, your host for today's show, and today we're going to be talking with Dr. Ruth Gamble about her book, Reincarnation in Tibetan Buddhism, The Third Karmapa and the Invention of a Tradition, published by Oxford University Press. Dr. Gamble is currently the David Myers Research Fellow in the Department of Archaeology and History at La Trobe University. Ruth, welcome to the show. Hi, how are you going? Great, thanks for thanks for being here. I'd like to start off as we usually do in our new books podcast, just by asking you to talk a little bit about yourself and your background. Um, where are you from? What what's your education background, and how did you come to study the things that you study?
1: I have what you'd call a non-linear background story. I think is the best way to put it. I grew up in the north of Australia, and I started my first job was as a journalist. I studied journalism. And then I got a job working for American television, actually, in Japan at the Olympics and uh, decided I like snowboarding better than journalism. And then I went (laughs) snowboarding and then I got bored of snowboarding and thought I'd go and check out the Himalayas because, you know, snow. Uh, And when I was there, I I got interested in uh, uh, Tibetan language as well as uh, interested in Tibetan Buddhism. And I did an interpreter's program uh, in Dharamsala, I uh, learnt Tibetan and then moved back to Australia and worked as an interpreter uh, for a Tibetan Geshe. And then while I was doing that, I did another degree in Asian studies. And uh, then I went to graduate school uh, and completed a PhD at the Australian National University in Canberra, Australia. Wow. And,
0: yeah. <laughs>
1: It's not normal. <laughs>
0: so tv to snowboarding to the the himalayas to (laughs) tibetan stuff and then you got it you got a few degrees yes yes yes. (laughs) yeah
1: um i I have like a yeah it's a non-linear story and i have a diverse background to bring to (laughs) to the research that i
0: do yeah that's great Yeah. yeah um so, so I'm curious, um, how did this book, Reincarnation in Tibetan Buddhism, come about? Where did this come from?
1: It's a result of my PhD research, um, but there's kind of an interesting story to that as well. I had started off thinking that I was going to write a thesis on Milarepa, uh, M- Milarepa's life story and his poem. And then I found someone else had already done that. So I had a few gins. Uh, and then gin and tonics and then decided <laughs> to think of something else to do. And the next day, someone handed me a, a disc with uh Joon Doji's Sumbum on it. And I thought, wow. oh, maybe he has songs. Um, so I went through and, and started, found a, a massive collection of um, his uh, Gur or his uh, songs of experience. And um, I started working on those songs. And then in the process of trying to figure out where the songs fitted into the world, um, I realized that there was two autobiographies uh, in the collected works as well. Um, So then I started uh, investigating them and they were really fascinating. So I found that the combination of the songs, which are really um, extemporaneous and he uh, tells you exactly how he's feeling, as well as this kind of constructed narrative of himself together um, gave me a really interesting insight into his world, into the third Kamapa's world.
0: Okay. Yeah. Okay. So and and so this. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. And then the uh,
1: the idea of how you become a reincarnate and the and the uh, the, the construction of that identity and therefore that tradition, because he was the first third, if that makes sense um was a was a dominant theme or a predominant theme in all of his writing.
0: Yeah. Okay. So. so 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 this kind of this came out of your um PhD thesis and it really kind of originated in your interest in looking at Rangjung Dorje's writings and then kind of expanded beyond that to look at the the broader kind of context.
1: Yeah, the broader context for so the how his writing was situated particularly first his his songs or his poems and then his life story and then yeah how that was situated how 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 that reflected his identity and the historical context in which they were written
0: yeah mm-hmm. So for folks who haven't read the book, um, which I, I, I loved this book. I <laughs> really loved folks. this book. So <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I, I hope that everybody listening will, will go and buy this book and read it because I just I loved this book. I really did. Um, but um, for folks who don't know about Rangjung Dorje, um, could you just explain a bit about who he was and why he's so important?
1: Sure. Um, so Rangjung Dorje was the third Kamapa. And he lived in the late 13th, early 14th century. Uh, And he was born um, really poor. His family had no uh, resources, not even any land. And he was recognized as the reincarnation of the second Kamapa by uh, the Siddha, the person who was renowned as a Siddha or Gempa. Uh, who took him under his wing, um, and then there was a war, and he moved to Tsipu, uh Monastery, the home of the second Kamapa. and even though the people at Serpu weren't really happy about it, um, he stayed there for quite a while, and gradually through his lifetime, through his, his um, writing, and his teaching, and his traveling, and his, I guess, personal charisma, he slowly became recognized as uh, the uh, Recognized and accepted as the in- reincarnation of the second Kamapa. And so, what you have with Ranjandodi is he's the first child to be recognized as a reincarnate. Uh, and, uh, and he's the first third in a row, if that makes sense. So, there had been people before him, lots of, well, lots, relative term, uh, quite a few people before him who'd said that they were the reincarnation or emanation or manifestation of another being but most of the time this is this had only happened once right so they'd say i'm em an, a an, an manifestation of this person i'm an incarnation of that person but there hadn't been a line and you kind of need three in a line for it to become a line so his uh, recognition as a child was the first time you had like a line of reincarnates in tibetan buddhism and then so he has no background, no family, and his whole identity is to be a reincarnation. So most of his writing, or a lot of his writing, reflects how he's establishing and coming to understand and promoting that identity.
0: Um, yeah, and, and then he becomes involved in, in politics and things, right, later in his he, life.
1: He becomes involved in I think he's actually born involved in politics, the poor guy. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, but uh, he's he. I was going to say he's also a really prolific writer, really, you know, smart person who uh, keeps writing works of philosophy and and works of about medicine. He's a, he's like something of a polymath, um, and that helps to consolidate his reputation as well. And he happens to live this. Uh, I don't know. You wouldn't say rags to riches, but maybe like, because um, <laughs> <laughs> um, he's you know, supposed to be rang rags all the time as a monk. But, uh, <laughs> but, but, but from obscurity to prominence, he lives this obscure to, obscure to prominent life uh, during the the last stage of the Mongol Empire. And towards the end of his life, he's invited to the Mongol court where he becomes uh, the last emperor of the Mongol Mongol Empire, Togun Timur's um, primary guru, or primary teacher. So he goes Mm. from being a a, a kid from a vagrant family on the edges of the Mongol Empire in southern Tibet to the fabled city. He dies in the fabled city of Xanadu or Shangdu in Inner Mongolia, what is now Inner Mongolia. Yeah. And the whole period is there's politics, politics, politics that he has to deal with. I mean, his first trip to Serpu basically seems to come about because there's a war on where he grew up between two um sets of Mongol troops and he and he basically goes there as a refugee. Yeah. So yeah. politics the whole way through.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a pretty amazing story. And the the second um the second half of your book really kind of um Draws a lot on on these um, autobiographical writings and songs and and um, outlines Rangjung Dorje's life. Um, yeah. I'm wondering the the first half of your book focuses a little bit more on the historical context of Rangjung Dorje and explains more about how the Buddhist theory of rebirth gave way to the Tibetan tulku tradition, um, which mm. is uniquely Tibetan, and which you call in your book an invented tradition. Um, I, I'm wondering if you could explain a little bit by what you mean when you say that the Tugla tradition is an invented tradition.
1: Well, it's taking this idea from uh, Hobbesworth in, uh, in the um, English literature tradition, who basically says that all traditions are invented. Uh, you know, they're not organic. Uh, they don't grow up naturally. They kind of, people invest in them uh, and create them as they go along. And I think that this is what happens with the, with traditions is that we lose the invention and accept them as being a normal part of life. And what I was looking at in this book is how the idea of a reincarnation tradition and a reincarnation institution and the... Um, uh, the the uh belief structures associated with them are often placed back onto uh, the earlier tradition the earlier parts of the tradition when it was being invented when they weren't there at the time so it wasn't a given that ranjan dorji would be recognized as a kamapa it wasn't a given uh that uh, he would when the 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 the, the tradition would continue it was the idea of it being continuous and that it would keep going was something of an invention of his writing and his um, his uh, perception of the world. Uh, so, uh, well, his understanding of himself more than uh, the, uh, just the world. So his his uh, this, there was kind of a feedback loop between how he understood himself, how the world saw him, and that created a sense that the that the Kamarpas would be there. And then so after he dies, um, it seemed natural for people to go and, and find his, re- his rebirth. So he's kind of invented it through the, through the course of his life.
0: Okay. So, yeah, I like this idea of this kind of feedback loop. Um, I'm wondering, could you give, a, I don't know, an example or something of, of some way that this feedback loop kind of works? Like how did Rongjung Dorje? Um, work to create this kind of persona where people would go and look for his reincarnation after he died.
1: So I guess in some ways that the fir- the, the whole of the first section of the book is about feedback loops. Um, mm-hmm. So I've got this idea of feedback loops through stories, like he tells the story. This, and, the, and the quote that I had in the front of the book, which I really loved, was he has this thing where he says, the time when I was young is like a dream, but I will speak a little of the parts that are clear because it's like it was someone else's story, and if I tell it, it will make it another person's story. So yeah. he's making—he's like inventing him. He's it's very meta for the 13th century or the 14th century. <laughs> he's yeah. like—he's igno- acknowledging his own invention um, in, in the telling of his story. So it's as if he tells his story, then that becomes his identity, and that identity is the basis on which he tells the story. So, mm-hmm. so the uh, so, so there's a feedback loop there and identity. Um, a narrative feedback loop. I am my story, and my story is how I understand myself. Right, mm-hmm. but then I also think that works um, with uh, his identity in, in lineages. I am part of this lineage, and then the lineage defines me. Right, so that that's another one, and also through communities. Like lineages aren't just uh, often when people describe things, they hollow out um, the the idea of a lineage to the, the people who are like the lineage holders or the centres of it. But there's actually a lot of community support that needs to go into the preservation of any tradition. And so there's there's like a relational um, loop between the Kamapas and those that some support them over the years as well. And the other thing that I'm really, really interested in is how that is in place. Um, so how the idea of a... Um, uh, the idea of the kamapas, the idea of reincarnation lineage is very much a product of a, a place as well as a time. And so he, the the kamapas, the third kamapa, Rongchen George spends a lot of time, or a lot invests a lot of ink. Even he says that I'm using a lot of ink um, to uh, to emplace the kamapas in in situations like the in Surpur Monastery and there other uh, and sacred sites and. Uh, retreat centers and he cr- sets up this situation whereby his presence in these places sacralizes them and their sacrality sacralizes him that makes sense so he makes them sacred by being there and they make him sacred through that through their sacredness it becomes uh, a fee- a fee- another feedback loop so they're happening all over the place it's it's all kind of relational uh, um the, the the idea of being a tukuru is a very much or or a reincarnate is very much a a, a relational um identity and a, a um, how do i put it it's it's a, it's a, a, a something that you work at but something that people become uh, aware of uh, and then they help uh, uh, solidify that identity as well I think there was one about the um, – I'm trying to – now I'm trying to find the quote. But there was one he actually says – he ma- he does the same kind of meta-analysis of uh, trans- l- literature that transforms landscapes into sacred sites as he does about himself. And he says something like, I can praise this site and the praise makes it sacred and then the sacred makes the praise sacred and it goes around yeah. in circles. Yeah. So it- –
0: yeah these these feedback loops are really interesting thinking about um you know he's he's writing kind of intentionally and saying okay this is who I am and then you know that kind of reinforces the the idea of who he is and um you know these feedback loops with communities and then I think the the stuff that you're doing with space is really interesting too I mean you as you just mentioned you know you're focusing not just on time and the idea of you know reincarnation lineages but you're also talking about space and and not just physical space but also sacred space yeah um and there's this yeah and and i think thinking of it in terms of a feedback loop is really um really interesting i'm just i'm curious i mean you've, you've already said a little bit but i'm wondering if you could expand more on this idea of space and how did that become so important in this project? Uh,
1: just before I do that, I found the quote. Um, oh, okay, great. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this will then become a site where reciprocal praise is performed between the sacred site itself and the actors who praise it repeatedly. For wherever there is praise, there is repetitive reciprocity. Wherever there is praise, it is repeated. All right, so. That's great. It, yeah he's he's i mean that was one of the things I liked about him so much he seems so he was i think that took would have made a really good marketer or um <laughs> like it worked really well in advertising you know or i mean hopefully for you know good causes like you know the environment or whatever but it, it's uh, <laughs> he, he's really kind of aware of this um personal creation and the way that words can be used to uh, create identities and um, constructions of how people understand things uh in his own writing it's 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 fascinating i find it fascinating but um yes uh, the uh, this the idea of space was and pr- the the main reason uh, that i became interested in it was it was such a theme in the song, mm. in the in his collection of songs or good these um spontaneous songs that were part of that are uh really Predominant in the um, gamagayu, but you know a lot of yogi traditions in Tibet, and mm-hmm. uh, that because they're created in a situation, usually a, a kind of a, a tantric ritual or feast, they reflect a lot on what where they're being created. So they describe where he is. Um, they uh, use the environment as kind of metaphors for uh, trying to get to higher truth or whatever it is, that they're a a really uh, predominant theme. And um, it just, it struck me when I was reading them that that in some ways that the poems are like the the descriptors and the spatial aspect of his story. So the idea of space, I got the idea of focusing on the space and the environment uh, in which he was operating by the songs, the songs, his songs of experience, which are part of the uh, yogi traditions of Tibet. That the, the yogis would sing songs, usually extemporaneously, and uh, and because they were singing them spontaneously in, in an environment, they would usually use that environment as metaphors or reflect on it when they were singing. So the idea of the the environment and the place he's in becomes a, a, a dominant theme throughout all of his songs and so that made me think about uh, how we uh, understand space in history because we don't usually we tend to have more about this happened then this happened then this happened rather than the space in which it happened and it, it struck me that the songs told us about space and the, the uh, life stories and numta they focus on time so they say this happened then this happened then this happened and they only have like a really brief descriptions of the environment. So he say, I went to uh, Lhasa, and then this and, this, and this, and this, and this, and this happened. You don't get a description of Lhasa in, in most Tibetan biography. Um, but the songs, on the other hand, have these big descriptions of place. and And I was thinking that the one of the most popular of uh, these uh, biography tradition, Milarepa's songs, they actually have both. They, the The narrative is interrupted by songs where he reflects on where he is. Uh, so you get this time, space, time, space, uh, flicking between the two throughout that narrative. And so what I had in the text that I was working with was, well, in Rangshun Dojie's text, was all space in the songs and then all <laughs> temporality in the, in the uh, life story. And so the, the distinction between the two of them was really stark, whereas it may not have been if they'd been blended together
0: okay yeah. so so you were kind of blending things together almost creating a biography of um dorje in a way similar to what you what you see in in milarepa's um i don't think uh, i've done writings. that yet
1: I think i'm gonna do that <laughs> um because uh, i was because this is much more kind of analyzing those texts but i think that's something sure. that needs to be done um but yeah i'm wondering about the hubris of you know, I'm writing your, bio, your autobiography, You know what I mean? It's well, sure, but, um, sure. But, it's, but the but in the analysis, it was I was I was working between the two to try and get a picture of of his the world that he inhabited.
0: Sure, sure. And and this, I mean, I think focusing on time and space together it makes for a much more um, rich sort of story and, and um, rich presentation of Dorje's life and you're able to kind of get as a reader you're able to get a better understanding and a deeper understanding of not just what was happening but what was happening and, and where.
1: Yeah I think maybe this comes from snowboarding right because <laughs> before I was a snowboarder I was a skateboarder right and you have this thing of everywhere you walk you're trying to you're seeing different paths to take and um, you know. Right, you have to I find think. your line, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so always looking at the environment, trying to see paths down it and how you can get around it. And um, and, and I think that, yeah, it, I mean, I'm too kind of broken to keep, well, not snowboarding, I'm not broken enough to stop snowboarding. <laughs> it, it means that you have this kind of spatial awareness that I think came through in the, um, reading the literature. I was trying to, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how it's getting around places and everything, um, uh, almost instinctively, as opposed to um, uh, just having this idea of this happened there and this happened and there. I think I'm always kind of asking where
0: things happened as
1: well as when and how. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah. Well, so see your your whole path your whole path to becoming a scholar it's all it's all connected. Yeah, yeah, it's um, connected. And that idea if you start doing
1: path metaphors, it never ends. There's always yeah, that's true. <laughs>
0: Oh that's great. Um <laughs> so so I'm curious um you know because the the tulku tradition um which you know arose in Tibetan Buddhism after uh Rangjung Dorje um you know this this idea of reincarnation kind of developed into the tulku tradition um but because that's so deeply ingrained in contemporary Tibetan Buddhism Mm. I'm just I'm just kind of curious. Um, I mean, I could imagine that some of the claims that you're making in this book about it being an invented tradition and about Rongjung Dorje being intentional in writing his autobiographies in this way. Um like, was that was that controversial in any way? Have you received any kind of pushback from, you know, from Tibetan people against some of the claims that you're making in this book?
1: Not yet. <laughs> um, <laughs> But I don't actually know if I am contradicting the – well, I'm, con- I'm contradicting the kind of shortened narrative, right? So, so what I see happening through the retellings of Ranjan Dorji's story is this kind of short form of his, his, his and the other Kamapa's lives so that they're reduced into being kind of photocopies of each other. And that always struck me about when they have the Tanka lineages up on the wall. Mm. Um, so they have like one and the next and the next and the next and the, and the actual individual lived experience is kind of a bit lost. And it always struck and it strikes me, you know, not just from a historian's perspective, but as someone who's interested in how beings lived, that there's something very re- reductive about that, uh, that you, what's the point of people, even if you're looking at it from a Buddhist perspective, what's the point of being an embodied person who shows who even if you like if you take this perspective that he had insights or realizations or whatever the idea to that he, he came down as an embodied being i mean that's what his story says he took life as a he he chose to be born uh, in order to help so therefore that lived experience is supposed to be a demonstration to other people on how to live so to ignore that, ignore the kind of uh, effort and the uh, the way that he used the opportunities he had in order to you know negotiate uh, through a, a a complicated situation with trying to keep the best the intention to help all beings in his head. I think getting rid of that is actually more insulting. You know, reducing that to mm. a, a single image. Is actually more insulting than paying respect to it, or, or um, uh, engaging with uh, that lifetime in a more in-depth way. But, I mean, that yeah, that personally, I think it's kind of to dismiss it as being just part of a tradition or uh, another step, as opposed to thinking about the, the complicated choices and the moral judgments and the sacrifices that had to be made by embodied beings. Hey, Is mm-hmm. more it, to me. It seems more respectful than just putting the people in a line and reducing them to a photocopy.
0: Well, that makes sense. Um,
1: yeah, so, I've got, so I, I haven't been criticized yet, but I've got a
0: reply for when. It happens. <laughs> well, that's good. It's good to be prepared. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, I mean, th- thinking about the the past and and. Um, just thinking, I don't know about the, the Tulku tradition more broadly and, right. and looking toward the, the future. Um, and, you know, I don't know, just thinking about contemporary developments, um, mm-hmm. things we're hearing in the news about certain Buddhist teachers, including yeah. um, Tibetan teachers who are recognized as Tulkus, right. Who have been accused of um, using their status to abuse or, or manipulate their students. Um you know, given given all of this, given the current environment around this, do you think that the Tulku tradition can survive?
1: I think it will. Um it, I think the question is more like whether it should in its current form. Mm. Um, and, I mean, there's things to it. I mean, that's what I find interesting about this story of Rangshindorti. Another thing about I found in his writing was that he's doing something quite radical, right? He's a low-born... Landless, not deserving of an education in a worldly sense, person who mm-hmm. um, has this idea that through this kind of gift of being recognized and the kindness that his teacher showed him, that he has, has a, a whole world opens up to him that would never have opened up uh, to anyone else in his situation. So, in some ways, at that stage early on, it was a very uh, diga- kind of egalitarian. I keep having this idea in my head that Ranjan Dorji may have had a sister who was really good at piano playing, right? But she was <laughs> never, the The causes and conditions were never there for her to have the same life as him, right? Mm. So um, that's kind of like a alternative history. <laughs> but for him, it, this idea of being recognized and uh, having gave him access to opportunities and um, you know, spiritual opportunities as well as as travel opportunities, educational opportunities that he would never have had. So, in some ways, at that stage, it was shaking up society. It was a, a radical transformation of, for at least for him, a radical transformation of how um, power structures were working at that point, right? And since mm-hmm. then, it was it, it was also an affront to embedded uh, hierarchies in families because. Uh, the tuku is a a familyless lineage, if that makes sense. So it was an affront to embedded power structures of his time. And I don't see that I don't see that happening now. I see uh, a, a certain sense of entitlement, right? So this is, uh, I mean well not a certain sense of entitlement, you're seeing some extreme entitlement. And even the I actually think that the Tuku system is even really kind of Harmful to the good guys in a way, you know, the hmm. that kind of are recognized as children and um, are trying to do the right thing. Like, I remember I used to work as an interpreter uh, before, uh, well, while I was at graduate school and, and doing it as well. And I remember one ring uh, Tukul saying to me um, he'd had to go and deal with someone who was being really dodgy. You say dodgy in America? Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, his and and he was saying, I have to go and contain this situation because he does one thing, and negative, it reflects on all of us. Mm. Right. So so it's it's like a communal uh, reputational thing as well as individually, and and I remember thinking that he he was trying to do the right thing, but this whole system was uh, in, in imprisoning him as well. And it's kind of it's a strange situation because on the one hand you get all of this it gives you privilege and for some people that becomes like a burden of responsibility and for other people which is which is not easy and on the other hand for other people it seems to become a, a license to be uh, obnoxious at least uh, if not abusive so mm-hmm. I think in both ways it's it's a burden. And I, and I even heard a story once someone told me, I can't say who, but someone told me that there, there had been the, – the local monks had come and said that they were a tuku and their father had said, no, you're child thieves. <laughs> 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 you're not taking my son. And um, <laughs> away. And, and, and I was like, why wow, did they said that to the monastery? And, and he said, yeah, because there was this idea that even if you have special qualities – that being in that situation isn't necessarily the best way for them to come to the fore, hmm. Um, hmm. which I just found fascinating. And that kind of speaks to some of, something else about it. And I'm ranting on here. Apologies. Is that no? It's all right. As an, an interpreter, uh, I think some of what we're seeing in these abusive situations is a misreading of how the Tukul system worked within Tibet. Right. So there was a lot more restrictions on their behaviour than there is in the West. And in some ways mm-hmm. that actually remind me of like drunk Australians in Bali, or I'm guessing drunk Americans in Mexico. <laughs> in, in, in yeah. the, there's, uh, they've gone into a situation where their like power and wealth is, and status enables them to do things, but there's not the social restrictions on that behaviour. Right? So mm. if in Tibet, someone would lock you up right? and, and, and you wouldn't have access to the same people um, that you would uh, in these situations. You know, it's a, um, I, I, I gave a talk once because I had this strange situation. I've interpreted for about seven different tukus and Lamas and Geshe and so on, and six of them gave me instructions on how to deal with sleazy teachers. Wow. Right? Yeah. Sickness. Wow. And the other one was just so kind of otherworldly that it was, you know, he, he wasn't really on our plane. Um, <laughs> so it wasn't something that I was being invested in. But, but all of them were saying, you know, in Tibet, if you're, you wouldn't be in a vulnerable situation like you are as, a, as an interpreter, um, you would have your family, you would have lots of protection. Um, the relationships between people are negotiated much more. And, but you're very isolated. So uh, you need to, and they gave me like, I can't remember them off the top of my head, but they told me sutras to quote and lines to use if someone said um, that, you know, that they're awakened and we should have tantric sex. And I was supposed to say, well, you may be awakened, but I know I'm not. Um, wow. <laughs> so I'll wow. be breaking my vows. And <laughs> but this whole, um, yeah, there, there was this they, whole, yeah, they all told me stories that I could tell to protect myself. And, and so I was thinking about it is, is what we're dealing with here is uh, as the Tukul tradition developed, there was lots of corruption. There was wars. There was all sorts of things went on. But there was also social structures that developed in order to contain that privilege. And
0: what mm-hmm. we're
1: dealing with is situations where that privilege isn't contained.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's it's as as Tibetan Buddhism is expanding outside of Tibet. It's yeah. encountering these wildly different social structures and situations.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and it's uh, and 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 for the people that don't know how to negotiate that, that don't have any background in it, that don't have any like family networks of you know, um, I don't know some sluggish uncle that's just not going to put up with that. Then <laughs> there, there's, there's a, it's, it's a, you're in a very vulnerable situation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think, yeah, uh, and I don't know. Is it? It's also really. There's a, I'm, not, I'm not saying this is just me who's looked at this tradition. I'm also taking a lot of these cues from people who've lived it. Like the Dalai mm-hmm. Lama says there is too many tuku. They just, they're like, you know, um, weeds. They're growing up everywhere. How, that's probably not a, bad, a good analogy. There's, they're spreading everywhere. There's so many. And uh, were, traditionally, there was much less resources to support that level of tukuness, for want of a better word um -hmm. so so that's one issue and the other issue is that it's a very different world and it means that you know keeping people in a situation where their life choices are decided at age three is very intensely problematic and and then they also you know there's all things about them being like not just as abusers but as abused and things as well so yeah yeah, yeah it's very different from what I'm looking at historically what I looked at historically it's a very
0: different yeah it's a very different situation than the situation that that Rungdrin Dorje grew yeah. up in
1: yeah and it yeah. And, and, and at that stage I, I mean it wasn't completely radical but it was it was a break it was a development that it, that loosened society as opposed to um tightening patriarchy
0: mhm mhm yeah, it was thinking about authority in a in a totally radical way.
1: Yeah, yeah. And and there was also these weird parallel authorities. Like the thing that strikes me about looking, um, I've been working on a, writing a, an article about the history of all the Kamafas and the thing that I looked at with all of their um, histories is that they didn't actually really take over control of Tophu until after the war with the Fifth Dalai Lama and the Uwansan War in the um, 1600s. Oh, okay. so until that point, they, they were kind of associated with Circle, but moving around, and um, there, there was a the, the second come up as family was still in charge, basically. So there was a, it was like an, a parallel authority to worldly to uh, familial authority. Hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. so, so it creates like a, a break in power structures, as opposed to, or alternative power structures, as opposed to. Enforcing
0: power structures that can that can then be abused. So, so one last question for you, just because we're we're almost out of time. Um, what are you working on now? What's what's next for you?
1: Um, well,
0: <laughs>
1: um, <laughs> so uh, I, I found a poem in the Sorcamapa's work, which was about a famine. And he describes a famine that was so intense um, that, people, that there was cannibalism and blames the famine on a, the uh, troops that have come in and, and destroyed uh, the soil. And this really struck me. I was like, that's insane. Wow. Yeah, yeah, really intense, <laughs> really um, descriptive and uh, m- very material and that's led me off on this whole other thing about looking at the materiality of the history as well as the space. So uh, I've been uh, transforming myself into an environmental historian um, after being inspired by Zhang Jun Doji. And um, uh, I'm currently writing a environmental history of the Yalun-Sanpo River. Okay. Um, and looking at the impacts that humans have had on it and uh, its a role in shaping uh, the human communities in Tibet. And I'm actually using his poems and descriptions as well as other people's um, poems and descriptions of the river and uh, everything from Dunhuang documents to pollen samples um, to uh, tracking dam- the the dams on the river and so on. So like a long history of the Yalong Sample from when it was uh, formed by the two continents smashing into each other up until today when it's being dammed. That's my current project.
0: Wow! So, like a like a biography of of the river.
1: Yeah, bio, yeah, lit- literally a biography of the river, like how how it graphing its biology.
0: Yeah! Wow, that's <laughs> great. That's fascinating.
1: <laughs> so, so it's yeah, and and some of that is also how people uh, understand the river, how they what they believe about the river, how they conceptualize it, and how uh, its presence. Help uh, is used as a metaphor in uh, in religious writing and and um, spiritual understanding and that sort of thing too. So yeah, wow. that's my current project. It's a bit of a departure, but there's a I went from snowboarding to
0: being a Tibetan interpreter, so. So maybe this is a little more closely related, more closely um, related. <laughs> <laughs> but it seems like it's, it's all connected. Now I'm, now I'm always going to think about, uh, Dorje as, as a snowboarder, uh, yeah. snowboarding through Tibet. So. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I actually, once, when I went from in, from, from, um, uh, snowboarding to, to, uh, to live in India, I was had a sat to a guy called Armton, Dogden Armton, who'd been a an medita- amazing meditator his whole life. And mm-hmm. uh, he said, I had to explain snowboarding to him. And then I got to the end of describing it in Tibetan with the snow and everything in the sky. And then he said, Why? And, like, question. And, then, and then he's like, Get back to me when you can do it without a board. So. <laughs>
0: Oh, yeah. that's great! <laughs> so, so, I
1: think uh, maybe yeah, Rangjinderji could do some stuff without a board that I can't. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's probably true. <laughs> <laughs> or could do, Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, um, well, Ruth, it was it was really great um, talking to you today, and I I appreciate you taking the time to to talk about your book. No, thank you. That was great fun. That was Ruth Gamble author of Reincarnation in Tibetan Buddhism, The Third Karmapa and the Invention of a Tradition, published by Oxford University Press in 2018. You can find out about more new books in Buddhist studies and other subjects by visiting newbooksnetwork.com or by searching for New Books Network wherever you get your podcasts.